All right, well, last week we started Mark chapter 10, which is kind of crazy to believe that we're in Mark chapter 10, but um, let's turn there together and we'll do a little bit of a review before we jump into the study of the rich young ruler. But thinking back to what we went over and what we learned together last week, what is the significance of the major shift that took place in Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 10, verse 1? got to wake up and get that coffee and do a little bit of thinking this morning. What's so significant about this major shift that took place in Mark 10, verse 1? I'll go ahead and read it for us. It says, Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. So what is the shift that we see here, and why is it significant? Yeah, he, he's shifting his ministry down southward, right? So he was up in the region of Galilee for the majority of his ministry. That's what Mark has been focused on. Uh, his ministry in Capernaum and uh, Nazareth up there in, in Galilee, he would dip down every now and then into the, the Decapolis, and he went up into uh, Tyre for a little bit. But yeah, now he is making his way toward Jerusalem. He's making his way toward the cross. And remember that uh, Mark is continually driving his readers toward the, the cross, focusing on Jesus' ministry as suffering servant and showing uh, how he's, he's working toward that, that end goal and that is most clear in his ministry at the cross. And just in the next chapter, in chapter 11, we'll see uh, his triumphal entry in Palm Sunday. So we're getting close to him being in Jerusalem and looking at the, the end of his life at Passion Week in just a number of verses here. All right, and then we also talk about several different implications that stem from Jesus' answers about divorce in verses 5 through 9. Uh, so think back to what some of those implications were that we looked over and we talked about last week. I'll go ahead and read this passage to refresh our memories. Starting in verse 5. It says that Jesus said to them, Beware of your hardness of heart. He wrote you, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What are some uh, implications of that, that statement that Jesus Proclaim to them. Well, it's not a duplication. It's explicit. God's design is for one man, one woman, permanently. That's it's a new. When they come together, it's a new entity, and it's not to be. That's God's design. That's what it's supposed to be. Okay. Good. So, yeah, the the purpose of the union is that the two become one flesh. Right. They don't come together for tax purposes. They don't come together. Uh, for uh, self-fulfillment purposes, not for sexual gratification, not for cultural acceptance. They come together because the two are to become one flesh, and this is actually picturing the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church, right? So two become one. 
Anything else you guys remember going over last week? You can't just divorce your wife for any reason. <laughs> yes, good. Yeah, so there's a, an intended duration that is associated with that statement. At the end of verse 9, it says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So this was intended by God to be uh, not for time and eternity, right? But until death do they part. And um, we looked at a couple of exemptions that Jesus offers in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 uh, for infidelity. And then uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he offers the exemption of uh, abandonment, yeah, leaving. And so aside from those two things, God has designed that to be an eternal, uh, lifelong union. Um, we also talked about the fact that Jesus was very clear about his pronouns, that it was one man and one woman who left one father and one mother, right? And people will often say, well, Jesus never taught against homosexuality or uh, any of these other sexual perversions. Uh, this is a great example of his pointing to God's design for marriage. Again, coupling that with uh, the parallel passage in Matthew 19. And then also the number of participants. Again, one and one, which precludes any uh, understanding of polygamy or polyamory. That was outside of God's design for marriage. And then, uh, last question for our review. Why does Mark implicate the women along with the men in verse 12, whereas Matthew only addresses the men who are uh, divorcing their wives? In verse 12 of Mark 10, it says that if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. You guys recall why Mark includes the woman, whereas Matthew doesn't? Yeah, good. So yeah, that all goes back to our, our first couple of lessons in Mark and realizing that the Different Gospels are written to different audiences with different purposes in mind. And so Matthew is writing to the Jews in Jerusalem where only the men had the uh, legal power and ability to divorce. And Mark is writing to the Romans in Rome where both men and women had this cultural uh, right to divorce. So it's kind of interesting to see those little snippets here and there as to why the, the authors chose to do the things that they did in the way that they did them. All right, well, let's jump into Mark chapter 10. And I was actually hoping to get to verses 13 through 16 last week, but that didn't happen, so we'll start off with that. And before we get there, uh, let's actually go back to chapter 9 and start in verse 33, because this has a, a lot of parallels with the passage we'll be looking at here briefly. So Mark 9, 33 through 37. Can I get somebody to read that for us, please? Mark 9, 33 through 37. All right, thanks. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. All right, thank you. So surely the disciples took this to heart, and they 
learn their lesson here, right? Uh, well, let's, let's keep reading. Uh, Mark 10, verse 13. Uh, I'll read through verse 16. It says, And they were bringing children to him so that they might touch them, so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. So it's interesting that it's not long after the, the passage that Christina just read that we have this situation where people are bringing their kids to Jesus and uh, the disciples are saying, no, get them out of here, turn them away, which is just mind-blowing. And we see Jesus doesn't respond to it too favorably, right? He becomes indignant, is what the text says. And uh, it's, again, just another reminder of how short-minded the disciples are, just as we tend to be too, that it doesn't take long for them to forget what Jesus had taught them. Well, over in uh, Luke 18.15, Luke uses a, a different word. He specifies that these were babies that were brought to Jesus, not just kids, but he uses the word uh, a different Greek word to show that it was infants who were being brought to Jesus. And so because of that, many have used this passage along with the, the Luke 18 passage to defend uh, infant baptism. They say, well, this is evidence for infant baptism. And that's something that we addressed a few weeks ago in our midweek study as we were comparing covenant theology with our personal understanding, dispensational uh, premillennialism. And so if you have thoughts about that, you can go back and catch that teaching. But if we really shouldn't be understanding this passage as speaking about infant baptism, as uh, we at this church don't, uh, at least in our doctrinal statement, me personally, we don't, um, then what is it that we ought to understand is taking place here? What is happening is uh, these children are being brought to Jesus. What is the, the main point of verses 13 through 16 as you would identify it. Gail. Well, that's okay. They're still, that's a, a secondary issue, so we can still be brothers and sisters with people who right. have a different view and opinion. But that doesn't save you as we know. It's, yep. it's a commitment, but just that's not going to save you. Mm -hmm. Good. And most of the people who believe that, they don't think that that's for salvation, but that is welcoming them into the covenant community. Um, but even that, I don't see evidence for that here, but as you mentioned, that children, they are um, an example of faith, right? They just have this uh, willingness to, to learn and to, to listen. Uh, children embody the humble inability that is required for salvation. They are uh, a perfect demonstration of that, a perfect picture of the dependence of what it means to, uh, to look to God for salvation. And we actually 
call them in our, our tax code, right? Dependents, because they are so dependent. And so Jesus points to them and say, hey, look at these dependent children, these children who are in need of uh, other people. They can't, they're not self-sustaining, right? And that's kind of the, the picture that Jesus is drawing out for us here. Our salvation is uh, necessarily preceded by an attitude of selfless need. Think of uh, the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Those who are at an end of themselves, they are just begging. They're realizing, I have a, a need. Just, just give it to me because I have nothing of my own, nothing to offer. That's how a child is, just by nature. They are uh, needy and uh, selfless and dependent. Um, I have that passage there marked for... Mark 4. Somebody have that passage? Mark 4, 26 through 29. It's one of the parables we looked at several months ago back in Mark chapter 4. Who's got that for us? We've got a quiet group this morning. In 26 through 29. All right, thanks, Jim. And he said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know, for the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest is coming. All right. So I think that's a, another good example that Jesus gave of this same uh, selflessness, this inability, just sitting back and letting God do what God does. Just like the farmer, he just throws the seed out there and uh, he goes to bed and then he wakes up and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. It just happens. God is the one who does the work. Uh, that's the same picture that he's trying to illustrate with this child. Just like this child uh, has this childlike faith, you too ought to come to God in the same way. Uh, this section gives us great insight into the affections of Jesus. Both his indignation and compassion are mentioned in this section. He is in indignant with the disciples who are turning away the children, and yet we see the, the compassion that he has toward the, the kids that are being brought to him, even the, the infants that are being brought to him, and the parents who are bringing the, the kids to him. Jesus is welcoming and embracing them into his arms. It was a, a while ago, but does anybody remember the big theological word that we use to speak of God's relationship with uh, his affections or his emotions, with his passions? It was quite a while. No guesses. All right. Yeah, we didn't spend too much time on it. It was his impassibility, his impassibility. You can hear the, the similarity there between passability and passions. And that's speaking to the fact that uh, or to the, the idea that God is not controlled or moved or changed by his emotions as we are. We can uh, be driven by our emotions, right? We can have uh, our emotions change the way that we would react or respond to something and they would um, alter our our perception of an event or the way that we would react in a certain situation. But God isn't like that. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have emotions to deny the fact that God 
has emotions would be to not to deny his his personhood, right? That he has personality. However, he isn't driven by his emotions and manipulated by his emotions in the same way that you and I are. So that is, um, this is just another example of how we see the emotions of Jesus coming out, even just in a, a simple interaction. Any other thoughts or questions on these verses? Yes, Jerry. I was curious again, did we see the, the disciples behaving this way because it was just like in verse 42 of 9 where God or Jesus told them, Yeah. You do that, you should have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the ocean. Yep. Yeah, that's that's no small picture. punishment, right? Yep. And yet, just here, they're, get away from here. That, that's the master. That's the Messiah. That's our rabbi. You're not allowed to talk to him. And then, yes, he becomes very indignant and rebukes them and welcomes them in. All right. Well, let's move on to the rich young ruler, verses 17 through 22. I'll go ahead and grab that for us. Mark 10, 17 through 22. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So this is a fairly popular passage, and this man again is known as the rich young ruler, but it is kind of curious why we give him this title, the rich young ruler. Because if you look through here, through our passage that we just read, we really don't see him identified as the rich young ruler. We do see down in verse 22 that he owned much property. So he had some money, he had some wealth from that statement. But really that's all that we see in this passage here. So we get that title from, it's kind of an amalgamation of uh, the different synoptic gospels, how we come to that title. So in Matthew 19, 22, it says, But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So there we see that he was a, a young guy. Uh, Matthew, again, used a, a more specific Greek word, letting us know that he was a youth. Uh, Luke, in Luke 18, 18, he said, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Matthew calls him young. Luke calls him a ruler. Uh, we see from both Matthew and Mark that he had a lot of money, a lot of possessions, and somehow we kind of formulate all those together to call this guy the rich young ruler. Uh, the fact that he was young, that should stand out to us, that he was young and a ruler, because most people who were rulers uh, were typically older. So he was most likely a ruler of a synagogue, and again, usually they, were, they tended to be older, and so... The fact that he was young, it just speaks even more to this man's ability to really stand out and to excel and to exceed in what he's doing in life. So he's, he's pretty sharp, he's young, he's wealthy, 
this guy's doing pretty good for himself. And how, looking back in our, our text in Mark 10, uh, how does this man approach Jesus? How does he come up and, and talk to Jesus? He falls on his knees. Good. He falls on his knees. And, and what else? How else do we see him approaching Jesus? All right, so yeah, he's running up to Jesus, and then he falls on his knees. So he approaches him with a, a sense of urgency, perhaps with a, a sense of concern. I think that he was definitely concerned about his salvation, right? And with a, a reverence and an honor toward the Lord. So uh, to, to run in this culture was seen as dishonorable. Um, in, in Jewish culture, if you're running, it means that... Um, you're, you're not of high status, that you perhaps don't have enough money or, or you don't have as much money or as much time. Um, have you guys seen that movie? It's probably not a good movie. I'm kind of second-guessing bringing it up now. Have you seen the movie In Time? Uh, it's really not that good of a movie, but the concept is kind of cool, where time is seen as currency in that movie. And um, whoever had more time, they would walk around more slowly. And if you saw people running around, it was an indication that you don't have as much money because you don't have as much time. Uh, that's kind of the, the mentality that I get here with this concept of Jewish culture and how uh, it wasn't seen as a, a favorable thing to be running. And we also see again that he knelt down before Jesus. So he was, uh, he obviously had some kind of honor for Jesus. He asked him, Respectfully, he didn't demand that Jesus give him an answer to this question. So, really, this is a, a great start to a, a conversation. Uh, that he is coming up to Jesus, he is uh, ready to listen, asking these questions. But turn back just a, a couple of chapters. We have to remember Mark eight thirty three, eight thirty three and thirty four says. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the standard for following after Jesus, to take up your cross and to follow him. Not just to ask good questions, not just to have a, a sense of urgency, not just to have a, uh, some concern about your eternity, and to uh, acknowledge that, Yes, Jesus is unique and special. This man did that. He bowed down to him, right? He knelt down before him. But he's still missing something. And so remind me again, what is the, the question that is on the table? What is it that he comes before Jesus running and, and kneeling before him to ask? What do I need to do to enter? Good. So it's a question of salvation, right? Uh, this is a, a difficult text that a lot of people have struggled with. How do we understand this text? What do we do with the, this question and the answer that Jesus gives him, especially with our uh, understanding of biblical theology on a whole? What is it that is required for salvation? We look at uh, passages like uh, Acts 16.9, where the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, right? Just believe. Or one of my favorite passages is John 6.28-29, uh, which says, uh, what are the works that we must do, or what are the works that are required for uh, for heaven? Jesus says, this is the work that you must do to believe in him whom he has sent. 
So again, the answer that Jesus himself gave is to believe. And yet here we have a very similar question with a, a different answer. And so it's a, a difficult passage that people often struggle with. And so I think it's important that we keep in mind that the context of this passage is centered around the question of salvation because people will often try to change the context of the pa this passage and uh, say that Jesus was perhaps answering a question about what it means to be a good follower of Jesus, what it means to be uh, to obtain some kind of next-level discipleship. Well, Jesus isn't addressing this man's sanctification. He's addressing this man's justification. That's what he's asking. What must I do to be saved? Uh, what must he do to enter eternal life? And we have to keep that in our mind as we're going throughout this text. Now, we have to realize that this man has, again, he's asked an incredibly direct question to the the very person that he needs to go to, right? There's no other person that he could have gone to that could answer this question better than Jesus did. He came and he approached with humility. He came with a level of concern and urgency in his heart. Uh, he is, uh, by, by all external appearances, he is uh, coming to the right person with the right question. This seems like the ideal situation, right? And yet... Uh, Jesus doesn't really address a question in the same way that we might think. This looks like an evangelist's dream, right? For somebody to just come up and say, what must I do to be saved? Uh, right on par with uh, Acts 8 and the, the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip saying, hey, what are you reading? Oh, Isaiah 53. This seems ideal. And yet Jesus uh, kind of takes it in a different direction than what we might think he would. It seems like a, a slam dunk uh, evangelistic opportunity. And yet Jesus pivots and he goes a different direction. Uh, Jerry, do you have a thought? Well, I was curious about the word inherit. On the surface, that sounds like you understand it's nothing he can earn. It has to be given to him. Yeah. Is that in the Greek correctly? Uh, I don't know. I didn't take the time to look into that. But it is certainly in reference to salvation. Uh, we'll see several different things throughout this passage that talk about so in 17 there, inherit eternal life, and then later on in uh, 23, 24, 25, each of those talk about entering the kingdom of God. Verse 26 says, then who can be saved? So all these things are uh, really equivalent. Yes, Jim. I think the ideal to inherit probably tells us a little bit more about him. Being rich and young, he probably inherited everything he had, and now he wants me, it, it speaks of his heart. And, yeah, uh, maybe. He just wants somebody to give it to him. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Just give me this, too. Like I've got everything else, just give me this. Yeah. And I think the, the whole thing, I think, is trying to get the man to realize where he's at. And I'm not sure he ever comes to that realization. Yeah, I don't think he does. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. So instead of Jesus just, again, taking that slam dunk and saying, okay, well, here it is. Uh, he takes a step back, and he first wants to define his terms. He wants to make sure that they're speaking on the same page, that they are uh, defining their, their terms in the same way, because if they're not, they're just going to be speaking past each other. And we know this, or we should know this, I guess, very well in our, our cultural context, that uh, we need to define what it is that we are saying and how it is that the other person is understanding what we're saying, especially when we're speaking about, again, 
justification about what it means to be declared righteous, what it means to be saved, because people can take the same terms and they can understand them very differently. And so there are a, a couple of ways to, to read this uh, when Jesus asks him, um, where am I at? When he asks him, what do you mean by good? There is none good but God. So when this man says, um, in verse 17, when he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. So perhaps this young man was just uh, throwing around words flippantly without really considering the, the weight of the words. He wasn't giving the proper weight to the words that he was speaking. Or he could also be uh, attempting to flatter Jesus, trying to, to butter him up, trying to appeal to his ego, not realizing that Jesus doesn't really have an ego. Remember, he's a, the suffering servant who came to seek and to save the lost. So uh, a couple of different ways to understand this. Again, this man's reference to Jesus as good could be an evidence of his flippant speech or of flattering speech. Um, we're not exactly sure. We can't get inside this man's head and understand. But uh, one view that is related to flattery and even takes it a, a step further is this one that's voiced by Ephraim of Cyrene. He says that the rich man called Jesus good as if he were offering him a favor, just as some favors offered with honor with just as others, just as some favor others. Just as some favor. Yes, just as some favor others with honorary titles. Yes, so like doctor or master or lord. Uh, the Lord fled from that by which people favored him, so that he might show that he had received the goodness from the Father through nature and not merely in name. So this guy perhaps is thinking that he is doing some kind of honor to Jesus, some kind of favor by referring to him as good teacher. Uh, that's a, a unique title. It's not something that was uh, normative for uh, Jewish culture. They didn't walk around calling all their rabbis good teachers. So this was something unique and different. And so perhaps he was trying to, to honor Jesus in this extra way to show favor to Jesus. And Jesus uh, kind of checked him a little bit um, and said not you need to you need to get it straight you need to understand you need to uh really know why it is that you call me good why do you call me good yeah do you understand what you're saying yes mm -hmm. good but he didn't wait for an answer that's because he knew what he was thinking yep yeah jesus he he didn't need that insight right he had that insight he's trying to draw out this man's heart you guys know what a, a word study is, right? We've all done word studies before in the past, I'm sure. Um, for instance, if we wanted to do a, a word study on the word love, we'd look up different passages that talk about love, to, um, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, to love your neighbor as yourself, or um, that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, does not boast, and, um, that God so loved the world, and then we'll compile that list and see what the the outcome is what is it what is it we can learn about this word love right that's how we'll typically go about a, a word study <clears throat> well i want to test your your bible trivia skills this morning and <laughs> jerry's rolling his eyes back you, you got this 
Um, I want to ask, where can we go in Scripture to find the results of a word study that Paul did on the word good and on this concept of righteousness? Where in Scripture can we see Paul's results of his word study on what is good and uh, those who are righteous? Remember where he talked about him being the Pharisee of Pharisee and that you know is uh, he he did that a little bit, yeah, in uh, Philippians three and in Second Corinthians eleven. He's more so defending his apostleship there. He's saying, "Well, look at look at this long list of what I've done," and uh, again, yeah, that's more of a defense of his apostleship uh, to appeal to somebody else's worldly thinking, their their backwards worldly thinking. Let me ask you, who is good? God. Who else? Who is who is righteous? None but God. None but God. How do you know that? In the Bible somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is indeed in the Bible somewhere. Let's turn to Romans three. Romans three is what we're looking for. This is where, uh, in my mind, Paul has gone through and he's done a quote unquote word study on goodness, and we see the results here in Romans three verses ten through eighteen. And he's drawing from the Old Testament, primarily from the Psalms, from Psalm 5, 9, 10, 7, 14, 1 through 3, 36, 1, 53, 1 through 3, and then he throws in Isaiah 59, 7. So he goes through and he does a word study on what it means to be good. And this is what he comes up with. He says, well, I'll start in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Uh, not at all. For we have sinned already. For we have, I can't read this morning. <laughs> for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So in the previous chapters, he's went through and he's talked about how the, the Jews are sinners and the Gentiles are sinners, and uh, here in chapter 3 he's saying all are sinners. And then he goes on, he says in verse 10, he says, as it is written, so this is the result of his word study, he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. Their, the poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You see, these are all in, at least in my Bible, they're all in caps. So these are quotes, all from the Old Testament. Uh, he's just verse after verse. He keeps going. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, he is laying down his case. He's saying there is absolutely none good. And he has uh, exhibit A, B, C, D, right? He's just all down the list. Look at what God says in the Old Testament. There is absolutely none who is good. And we have a problem with that as humans, right? We want to be good. We want to lower the standard of goodness to a point where we can uh, achieve it somehow, where just striving for goodness is somehow sufficient. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that say, <clears throat> well, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to please God. I'm doing my best. And they're satisfied with that. They think that that's sufficient as long as they're trying. And God knows. He understands that we're going to fall short. Um, and they think that that is somehow good enough. Um, and yet... 
that's not, right? We know that this list makes it quite clear that goodness is a trait that belongs to God alone. God is good, and he alone is good. Um, he doesn't get this goodness from anybody else's goodness is innately his. He possesses it by himself, by the nature of who he is. Listen to this quote from Augustine. He says that God is uniquely good, and this he cannot lose. He is good, period. Well, that's a good sentence, right? God is good. Uh, he is not good by sharing in any other good, because the good by which he is good is himself. But when a finite human being is good, his goodness derives from God, because he cannot be his own good. God is good in himself. So, to whatever degree we might consider ourselves good, it is only because we are sharing in some finite portion in God's innate goodness, in his infinite goodness. But God doesn't get his goodness. He doesn't derive his goodness from anywhere else. He alone is good. And so that's what Jesus is trying to identify. That, that's what Jesus is trying to help this, this man identify and realize. Jesus isn't denying his own goodness. People often point to this verse and they'll say, well, look, Jesus said, uh, who is good except for God alone? Why would he say that if this man called him good unless Jesus wasn't God? Totally missing the point. That's not at all what Jesus was getting at. Jesus was, again, trying to draw out this man's heart. He was correcting what he was saying. He was saying, stop speaking so flippantly. Don't try to flatter me. Uh, if you're going to call me good, you need to understand what that means. You need to understand the true implications of what it means that I am good because God alone is good. He alone is innately good. He is drawing out this man's heart. And we have to remember that that's what Jesus does, right? We see that all throughout the text. Jesus is just asking questions, just drawing out this man's heart. We saw that back in uh, verse 3, right? Uh, when he was talking to the disciples, and, uh, or not to the disciples, to the Pharisees, and he answered and he said to them, what did Moses command you? He's trying to draw them out, help them to, to understand where they fall short and uh, give them greater understanding. And Jesus wanted to make clear to this man and to point out his, his misunderstanding so that he would uh, have a, a true understanding of what it means to be good. We Again, have to keep in mind that Jesus isn't trying to learn anything. He's not trying to gain any information here. Jesus knows this man's heart perfectly. Uh, even prior to his, his pious response, Jesus knows uh, his self-righteous attitude. Jesus knows exactly how it is that he's going to respond to uh, Jesus drawing out his heart. And that's why he jumps in verse 19 to the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. Right? And he lists them off. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Uh, the, the second table of the law, so to speak. The latter part of the commandments. The Ten Commandments that deal with our relationship with one another. And uh, Jesus is using the law to uh, point out his need. Right? This isn't unique to, to Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort knocked off Jesus and he took this approach. Uh, law to the proud and grace to the humble, right? That's how we need to approach our evangelism. If somebody is proud, we need to help them realize they have a need. Again, Matthew 5, 3, that we need to be humble. We need to be poor in spirit. That is where we have to start. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then once somebody realizes, 
dude, I'm, I'm, I'm broken. I can't do anything. I, I, I need help because I'm incapable. I'm unable on my own. Then we take them to the cross. We show them grace. Uh, Romans 3, 19 and 20. Somebody still there in Romans? And grab that for us. That speaks to the, the purpose of the law. Go ahead, Jerry. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. So did you guys catch that last stanza there? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We have the law presented to us, and we hold it up like a mirror, and we can see, oh, man, I, that's not good, right? I, I missed that one. I missed that one. Uh, all the way down the list, we can see how we fall short of the glory of God. All right. Uh, so in verse 19, Jesus presents this man with the law. And just thinking about yourself, can you imagine being confronted with the law in this way? Um, you know the commands, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not defraud, all these in verse 19. And then responding as this man did in verse 20, where it says that he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. That is just utter arrogance, isn't it? Just, I have, I have kept all these things. That is quite a statement to say that. Well, Let's consider, let's brainstorm for a moment. What are some of the options for how we could understand this man's answer? What do you think he might be thinking? How should we understand his answer? Yes. Well, first, he's, this is possible. Just those three, that Jesus doesn't list all of them. Okay. Yeah, he only gave him a, a shortened list. Yep. Okay, so you're saying... things that outwardly you could appear to have kept, and you could convince yourself that you are keeping them. Okay, good. So... You haven't read Matthew 5 yet. Yep. So that's one option, that he was truly sinless in regard to these particular sins. That, that was his understanding. So he said, well, I, I've kept all these from my youth upward. Do you have another option? Oh, no. This uh, is, is going to be hard, but I think this would probably be part of his motivation. If he was a, one of the rulers in the synagogue, he had to be morally pure. He had to keep the law. Yeah. So...
someone that came along that was greater than the law. Amen. And that was <coughs> that was the sticking point. Mm -hmm. You know, because they're they're like you know for thousands of years we've been maintaining the law of Moses. That's what this is. That's what God expects of us. Mm -hmm. And then God Himself comes along and says, "Yes, but I'm raising the bar. This is the law." You know, you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Yep. And that was that was Jesus' teaching. Yeah, Paul himself, he said, according to the law, that he was blameless, right? And so there was this kind of understanding that, well, yeah, I've, I've kept those things. So I've come up with three options. Uh, first one was that just straight out he was lying, right? Perhaps he was lying and saying he's kept all these things. Uh, perhaps he was deceived in saying he's kept all these commandments. Uh, or maybe he was truly sinless regarding these sins, right? Well, based on our understanding of a fuller biblical theology and what the Bible more broadly says um, beyond just this isolated incident, which one of these options can we go ahead and eliminate right off the bat? Number three, yeah. Number three right? Because of what Andy said in uh, Matthew 5, how Jesus elevated the law. He said, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? in regards particularly to murder and adultery. And so we can strike that off the list. Uh, James 2.10 also says, for he who keeps a whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's guilty of breaking it all. Um, I'm sure that if this man's parents were there, maybe he, they would object to him having honored them um, at least once or twice, right? Maybe he uh, slipped up at some point. Well, now we're left with these two options, that he was lying or he was deceiving. Uh, or deceived, rather. And based on the context, which one of these options do you find most likely? Looking at the, the surrounding verses around this man's statement, saying, Teacher, I've kept all these statements from my youth upward. Two. Two? Why do you say that? Jesus' reaction was interesting. Yes, in verse 21. Uh, we see Jesus' reaction. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess. So Jesus looked at him, he felt a love and a compassion for him. So again, Jesus knows his heart. If this guy was just lying, just a, a bold-faced lie, right to the face of the Messiah, surely he would know that, and he would call him out in the midst of already drawing out his heart. Uh, that's something that Jesus would call out, but that's not how he responded. He responded in love and compassion. So, yeah, I think that he was certainly deceived. Yes, Jim. Why do you think Jesus skipped the first four commandments? Why did he not give him the first four? Um, I think because he would utterly just fall on his face. And um, I think he goes on. He actually does draw that out here in a moment. And that's part of his response in 21 is to help draw out those further commandments. When he says, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So I think that's a, a reference back to the, the first commandment. What is the, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? Yes, to have no other gods before him, right? And Jesus summarizes it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, you can't do that if you have all these possessions that you're holding on to, and you are placing that priority over your your honor to the Lord. So this man was deceived um, by Satan, right? Satan is a deceiver. He's a liar and the father of lies. lies. He is the, the godless world. And 
this world system is deceitful. So many different ways that we are lied to and deceived by the world. This man was self-deceived just as we are ourselves lying to ourselves, right? And yet again, we see Jesus' compassion shine through and he, he places his finger right on this man's issue, right? On his primary problem, uh, his love for his possessions. And this man's love for his money, for his wealth, for his many properties that he owned, it was all tantamount to idolatry. Again, uh, going back to the, the first commandment and talking about how he falls short. This man came and he presented to Jesus all of his goodness. He says, look, I've, I've kept all these commands. I've uh, not dishonored my mother, not dishonored my father, or haven't committed adultery. I've done all this good stuff. And Jesus comes up and he just pops that balloon and says, no, that's, that's not good enough because look at this. You have this big idol in your life that is above your, your love for God. You can't even keep the first commandment, right? And he kind of reframes this man's thinking. And this man just walked away, right? Like the dad from the Everclear song. And he walked away. Yes, Jim. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. He didn't give in person because, one, I think because he would have just said yes. Just like if Jesus had said to have eternal life, he had to believe. He would have said, I believe. Yeah. Yep. yep. He had to draw it out of him. And that's what we need to do in our evangelism, too. We need to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, lots of people say, oh, you know, I believe. I'm saved. Yep. Yeah, we need to dig a little bit deeper and it's keep working. It's too shallow sometimes, you know. All right, well, looking at... realization of where we're at, it's easy to say, I believe. Yeah. Even the demons believe in Shudder, right? It has to go deeper than that. Well, looking at verses 23 through 27, uh, we see uh, it being taken deeper. Who then can be saved? So I'll read those real quick. It says, Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And so again, we have to understand that this is speaking about salvation. All these terms that we mentioned before, they're all equivalent. Inherit eternal life in uh, 17, enter the kingdom of God in 23, 24, 25 uh, is equal to being saved, as I mentioned in verse 27. All these are speaking of salvation. Uh, and we see that uh, Jesus, by addressing his commandments, or he begins by addressing his commandments towards the, or his comments towards the wealthy. So it says that he was looking around and he said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And so this is often understood as speaking toward the, uh, the proud, pious understanding of those who are wealthy, who uh, have this self-reliant mindset, who have been able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, um, banking on their own ability, their own capabilities. Again, this rich young ruler, he was in a position in life that uh, many of his peers were not. 
And there's definitely some truth to this. 1 Timothy 6, 7 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So there is an aspect of that. However, the disciples were amazed by this statement that Jesus said, that even the rich can't be saved. And they were taken off guard. And this was due to the misconception uh, that they had in that time that God especially favored the wealthy. This is kind of popular today, but it was especially popular there then. It was a teaching of the Pharisees that if you had a lot of money, it was because God had a lot of favor on you. He had placed his blessing upon you. And that was evidenced through you having all these material goods. Uh, and likewise, if you didn't have a lot, it was because, well, maybe you're in trouble with God. Maybe you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so God has withheld his blessings from you. Uh, we know this is not true, right? This is not the case. That's more in line with something we might see on TBN, some prosperity gospel that we need to avoid. That is not biblical gospel teaching. But we have to notice also that after the disciples' amazed reaction, Jesus even removed the, the wealthy caveat, uh, stating that it was uh, just universally difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It says that the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said, so he, he's taken off the wealthy caveat. He says, children, how hard is it just for anyone to enter the kingdom of God? And then he takes it up even another step. In verse 25, he gives this word picture to illustrate how difficult it is. He says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, before in the Talmud, it said how hard it is for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. But they didn't have elephants at this time in Israel, and so Jesus took the largest animal they had in their culture at that time, and he said, well, how difficult it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And he takes it up even another notch, and he defines it for them. And so looking at them, uh, well, actually 26, they were even more astonished. So after he raised the stakes, they realized, okay, well, he's not just talking about rich people, he's talking about everybody. He's saying it's really difficult, so much so that he equates it with a camel go through the eye of a needle, and they asked, who can be saved? And Jesus defines the point of his illustration. He says, with people, it's impossible. You, you can't do it. Nobody can be saved uh, at all. Not just the rich, but nobody can be saved. But all things are possible with God. So again, he's drawing them back to uh, their reliance, back to their dependence upon God and their trust in him. Just as uh, a child needs to put his faith and his trust in God. We need to have that childlike faith, that childlike understanding about uh, our relationship with God. And next week, we will not be in Mark, uh, but one of these days, we'll get back to Mark and we'll hit those last three verses in this section. Uh, but next week, we're going to be in here for a, a combined class. We're going to find the two classes for the next several weeks. And we're going to be talking about laymen in the church. But when we do finally meet back in here on July 30th, we're going to do, I, I guess we won't be here in this text on July 30th. We'll do that on August, oh, would that be the 6th or so? But on July 30th, we're going to do a, a review, similar to how we did last time with the Jeopardy game. So bring your notes, any notes that you might have taken, and bring your Bibles, and we will do a review on that day. But do we have any last thoughts or questions? on this passage. Yes, Jim.
I like to point out the people that Rich Young Brewer walked away very sorrowfully. Yeah. Not just disappointed. He was sorrowful. Yep. And, and well, him, why was he? Why was he in sorrow? He had exactly what he chose in life, all his wealth. Yep. He hadn't lost a thing. Yeah. He, he, he wasn't willing to, or he, he counted the cost. Jesus had helped him count the cost. He thought he counted the cost, but Jesus said, no, this is what it costs. Let me, let me point it out to you. Let me spell it out to you. And he was unwilling. He walked away sad, likely with tears in his eyes. And uh, Jesus then points at him and he says, look at him walking away. And, and Peter says, hey, well, what about us? And that's what we'll get into next time with these next he verses. Yeah. He chose. And you see what happened. Yep. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray. God, we do pray for those who have turned their back on you, those who have not chosen to, to follow you, those who have uh, embraced this world. Uh, God, we know that riches are deceitful, that the, the love of wealth is uh, something we want to avoid. We pray that you would help us to do so. We pray that we would uh, grow firm in the, in the gospel that the seed that you have planted in us would indeed find its, find its way to, to good soil, that we would bear fruit some 30, 60, 100-fold, that we would honor you in all that we do, that we would be true disciples of yours, that we would love you and know what it is to be your disciple, that we would have faith like children, and we would follow hard after you. We pray this in your name. Amen.